Welcome to Where Are We Going? Episode 2. Today we talk racism and Christianity. My name is Nikki Scott Bay Jones, and I work with Transform Network, among other things. I'm one of those people that always has like 12 jobs and 15 uh, amazing other things going on in life. But um, kind of my main thing right now um, is Transform Network. And we um, equip and mobilize uh, faith-rooted organizers and activists and missional practitioners. And I'm the currently the director of training and program development. So right now, we're really focused on the issue of racial justice. We're going to be tackling that a lot in 2016. Um, at least in five cities, we'll be doing um, some racial justice workshops specifically for, you know, faith communities, congregations, um, and not just single ones. You know, they can bring them into their whole community um, because it's great for churches to be dealing with this. But, you know, as we've been able to see, this is something that entire communities um, are having to deal with. And it has to be both kind of that local and national level to really make change. I, I think a lot of times we talk about issues like racism, like racial justice, or just justice in general. Um, and not everyone has the same idea of what those terms mean. I, I remember kind of early on in youth ministry and starting to hear the term justice, and I I just related the word to People in prison, and uh, and so coming to understand a lot of those terms and the way that they're used in different in, in different contexts, I think is really important. Can you define some of those ideas? What is racism for us today when when different folks talk about it? What is privilege? What is justice? Sure, um, it's you know we're kind of at this moment where nobody is racist, right? Like. <laughs> Um, and it's, it's difficult to even have those conversations because, um, white folks especially get really upset. Um, there's this kind of concept that's getting more traction now called white fragility. And that's kind of how, um, when, when the subject of race comes up, um, that white people just freak out. Like it's this very, um, visceral reaction to the thought that they would be considered a racist because at this point, like our kind of caricature of racism is is like the flag the 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 confederate flag waving like um pickup truck driving um you know southerner who sure. is you know who who like freely uses the n-word right and while those people exist because i live in the south like trust me i know they exist um and they're my neighbors sometimes. Um, so, um, but that is like our definition of a racist. And anyone who's like, no, I'm nice to black people. Like, um, I have a black coworker and we totally eat lunch together on Thursdays. Like, <laughs> you know, that is like, you can't be, you can't have any kind of racism within you. You can't be participating in, in systemic um, racism or injustice. Yeah. You have that one black friend, right? right. So we kind of like, it's like, we feel like we've gotten past it. So it's weird to still talk about it. Um, but you know, racism, um, systemic, um, racism is nobody has to be racist at this point. We have a well running system 
that keeps racism in place for us. And so it's not necessarily um, a thing of, you know, I'm not saying white people are actively oppressing me. That's not, you know, what I'm talking about most of the time when I'm talking about racism. It's a system that we're all complicit in and, and active in, even people of color. And so, um, you know, it's a system that, you know, incarcerates people of color at greater rates, um, puts down harsher penalties on people of color, um, higher poverty rates, um, lower graduation rates, all of these things that have developed over time um, and have been part of the system from the beginning. Um, you know, we have a nation that's built on stolen land and free labor. And so it's just it's just the system that we live in. And yes, there is active prejudice, which is the basis of, of racism. But for the most part, we now live in this system that we have to seek to dismantle. Yeah. I work in housing and the a lot of the housing laws that were put into place and just even the uh, the practices that existed from the beginning of the 1900s until the 60s um, and even some beyond I see really had a negative effect on um, on minorities in America. And uh, can you talk a little bit about some of those those issues like that, like housing or or law enforcement or those different things that have affected th- that have created problems? Yeah, I mean, housing is one of those places where once your eyes are open to that, once people can see that it's a really tangible way for them to understand systemic racism. Yeah. Um, you, you know, there's. um there are the laws that were actually put in place. And then there is just kind of, you know, the redlining that was a wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of thing that isn't really, it's not codified in law, but it's there. Um, you know, there are many, many stories of, you know, a black family going to, um, you know, a, a realtor and them being told, well, let me show you houses in this part of the city. Right. Um, you know, I have a personal family story. My grandparents, um, so actually my, my grandmother on my mother's side, her father was, um, biracial black and white. And, um, he would, he was very, very light skinned. And so he could, he would go, he would find an apartment by himself. He would come back with his darker black wife and they would turn them away. Wow. So, I mean, you know, this is a very real, every, every black and brown family probably has a story like that. You know, if they have, if they could get their grandparents to talk about it, I mean, a lot of people wouldn't, wouldn't ever really have those conversations. Um, but that's kind of the one big family story that has survived, you know, in my own family. Um, but there's all kinds of, um, you know, things where you can find stuff like that. There's a, a documentary that just came out, um, it's, it was on Fusion TV. It's it's like a cable channel, and it was it's on Ferguson. Um, it's kind of you know a retrospective Ferguson one year later, and uh, they actually explain how all these different municipalities grew up in in the St. Louis area. Um, and it it so what it does is it kind of lays the groundwork of why Ferguson happened and why it was set up that way. And so what you had is you had this, um, you know, Ferguson, St. Louis, if you go there today, you see the shell of a city. There are streets that have many abandoned 
um, townhomes and houses on the street. I've never seen anything like that. Um, Nashville is still pretty much at the same height that it's always been in growing. You, you actually can't, they cannot build luxury apartments fast enough in Nashville, actually. So, but in St. Louis, you have the opposite. You have the, just a glut of abandoned buildings. And what happened is as you had the white flight, they started marking off. I mean, some municipalities are literally um, like five mile radius, right? And they have their own court system and they have their own police department. And, and what happened is, you know, kind of um, these small enclaves of white people made their own municipalities. And so then you have this system that courted off people of color into certain areas. Um, you also had things like Pruitt-Igo, which was, um, or, you know, sometimes if, you know, if you listen to especially rap music from the, um, the, the 80s, um, you'll hear people talk about Cabrini Green, right? And so these high rises that were made, um, particularly for people of color, and um, they were left to just rot and squalor. And, we've, and none of that worked, right? It just didn't yeah. work to people in high rises and they thought it would. I mean, I've seen the old, you know, sixties film footage where they were supposed to be these beautiful, this supposed to be the answer and kind of way to get, get these people into housing. Yep. And it didn't work. Um, and so, you know, housing is one of this kind of the, the very tangible ways that we can see how people were, um, or where systemic racism has affected people, but still it's difficult, right? Cause you see it in working in housing. Like you actually see how it physically manifests. But I think if you've never lived in or been near those neighborhoods, like for a lot of white people, they don't ever have a reason to drive sure. to those parts of town, you know? So they don't really understand that you cross this invisible line and now it's all people of color. Yep. You know, <laughs> like that's especially once you get outside of kind of, um, the Eastern seaboard or like, you know, New York where they've had ethnic neighborhoods for a long time. Like where I live, there's no concept of like little Italy or little Chinatown or like, there's no, we don't have ethnic neighborhoods, you know? And so it's a really different thing for other parts of the country that didn't start off with that kind of um, system. Um, And then, and it was always kind of hidden you know, that this was where all the black people lived or all the Latinos lived or whatever. So I think that that sometimes the perception from the outside can be, oh, well, well, the 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 African-Americans or the this racial minority have their own little community here. And so they can set up something that preserves their identity and creates a healthy community. So what's the problem? Sure. And, you know, there there actually is something to that in that before segregation, um, these communities were really good, at least for black people. They were very good. Bell Hooks talks about this, about how um, at least when she was a little girl before, segre- before desegregation, she went home to communities of color. Um, and, and actually everything was a community of color. So she went to school. The teachers were all black. Her, you know, the, her classmates were all black. It was this beautiful community that very much was trying to grow her up into, you know, a good citizen and whatever. So then what happened with segregation, with desegregation, is that um, 
you eventually had those those communities breaking up. Not only it started kind of with with, with desegregating the schools, but they eventually, especially middle class and above, were people were moving out and not coming home to that kind of enclave. Um, and and what we found is that desegregation only really happened for a few people. It didn't really happen large scale. Um, I I feel like I talk to people here and I'm like, oh, so do you live in a mixed neighborhood? And they're like, oh yeah, there's like one black family, <laughs> you know, like that. And that's not really desegregation. We're finding out that um, our school systems are actually increasingly segregated again. Um, and so what happened is the majority of poor and marginalized people of color got left behind. Um, and their, and their communities became less and less resourced. And so while it worked out for kind of, you know, middle class and above black people, it did not work out for the majority of people of color who are still living in poverty today. And I think we just don't realize that, right? We're like, Oh, well we have Obama. Black people are fine. Yeah. Um, but that's a really small percentage of black people who have gotten to that level. Um, and, and so, you know, we need to reexamine kind of where we've gotten and what are, what the policies really have done. Um, and that's where, you know, like it's difficult, right? Because Christians, um, like, I think we have a hard time figuring out how we engage politically and how we like, um, like we feel comfortable with certain things, right? Like we can, we can kind of get involved in abortion or we can get involved in um, like legislating some kind of more morality things. But I think when it comes to poverty and um, housing, those are things that we've tended not to navigate well. We have not been so good at finding solutions to culture-wide, system-wide, society-wide problems. The church world has been good at telling people how to behave, how to have a better relationship with God, how to pray more, how to worship better, but we haven't been so good at solving those problems, those problems that emerge from poverty, problems that exist around the issue of racism. And as those problems become more and more embedded and as they grow and they, they evolve into even deeper problems, we don't always know what to do. Sometimes we don't even recognize them as issues that Christians should be involved in. We leave them to politicians to solve. I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. William Barber, who has headed the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina. Dr. Barber has been very outspoken and very active in working to solve societal problems societal problems such as racism and poverty and issues of injustice that seem to be an increasing problem for so many communities. We decided that we needed a deep, an, a, an indigenously led 
deeply moral, deeply constitutional, anti-racist, anti-poverty, pro-justice, transformative fusion movement, particularly in the South, because what we've got to do is focus on states. Dr. King said, go back to Alabama, go back to Mississippi. Too often we focus on the federal down, but real change comes from Birmingham up, from Greensboro up. So the Forward Together movement is a moral movement that examines public policy at the state level and challenges it based on is it morally defensible, constitutionally consistent, and economically sane. We've been at this now since 2013. The, the foundation of the movement is seven years old, but that part, the moral movement, is a part of the Forward Together movement, the moral movement. Over a thousand people have been arrested. We've challenged extremism in our state where they've cut Medicaid, denied Medicaid expansion to 500,000 people, took earned income tax credit from 900,000 people to give 14 families a tax in break, um, attacked voting rights in a way we haven't seen since the 60s, attacked women, the LGBT community, immigrant community, and raised taxes on working people in order to cut taxes on the wealthy. We feel like that's not Democrat or Republican, it's not liberal versus um, um, conservative, it's immoral. It's immoral public policy. And so we have formed this movement that, that consists of, of, of clergy, of activists, of people of all different races, creeds, and colors, of civil disobedience, voter registration, litigation, in other words, full gamut, but it's under this framework of Moral Mondays. And I think we've done now over 200 actions since 2013 and since then, last year, Jason, we've seen the polls shift. When we started, only 40% of North Carolinians supported Medicaid expansion, but now over 58% do because we showed it to them through a moral, constitutional, and economic lens as opposed to a Republican Democrat. Sure. Can you say a little bit about why, uh, how does this connect with the gospel? Why is it important in the kingdom of God? Well, we argue that the first Moral Monday was the first Monday that Jesus went in the temple and overturned the table. That was on Monday. It was on Monday of Holy Week. Isaiah says, cry loud and spare not. Jeremiah 22 says, go down to the king's palace. Go down and tell them to be just. Tell them to care about the least of these. There is no concept of Christianity without preaching good news to the poor, without challenging the nations to feed the hungry. So we believe our deepest moral values call for community, call for public policy, that first considers how do we, what are we, what are we doing to affect those on the margin, those at the bottom. Our Constitution starts with establishment of justice. It doesn't start with freedom. It says you got to establish justice, you got to promote the general welfare, provide for the common defense, and secure domestic tranquility, and then you have freedom. So any policies that does not start with how does this establish justice is actually contrary to our deepest constitutional values. Um, the, the two times that this country has fundamentally changed in what we call the first Reconstruction, 1868-1890s, and the second Reconstruction, 1954-1968, in both of those eras, moral critique was at the center. That's how the abolitionists won. That's how we got the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, Brown versus Board of Education, increases in Medicaid, Medicare, uh, the, the, the war on poverty were all morally centered policies. And I recently heard a major businessman talking with the president at George Washington University. He said this, he said, Mr. President, until we answer the moral question about how we see one another as brothers and sisters, all the other conversations we have about economics and everything else are just tertiary. Can you say a little bit about the, the racial 
reconciliation um, that that's needed and inherent in that? Well, I believe that you cannot have any moral movement in this country, particularly in the South, but in the country, without having a race analysis, a deep race and class analysis. And people say, well, is it race or class? And I said, I said it is. There's no, you don't separate it. So before you can have reconciliation, you have to have recognition. You have to have recognition of how racism and white supremacy and past and present still informs our politics. Still, For instance, all of the states pretty much that have denied Medicaid expansion are primarily in the South. Now, the most people being hurt are white, but six out of ten percent of the people are black. Why does it work like that? Why do why do whites in the South vote against their own own um, futures? The white Southern strategy that was developed in 1968 that was later on exposed by um, uh, 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 what was the name? Lee Atwater, not Lee Atwater, yeah, Lee Atwater. Um, when he when he exposed it, he actually said. We figured a way to talk race without sounding racist. We talk about tax cuts and entitlements, law and order, forced busing, and states' rights. Doesn't sound racist. But inherent in that dialogue is a racist critique. It is a suggestion that entitlements are going to those people who don't deserve it. You, we have had been that successful in the moral movement, showing that when you follow that, you do get politicians that cut programs. But in their cutting program and, and using the theory that is for them, i.e. black and brown people, they actually end up hurting right. a lot of white people. Right. And when people see that, they say, wait a minute, this is wrong. Yeah. This is fundamentally wrong. So we're in a time in this nation right now where we have to have a serious race analysis. Uh, some people are trying to limit it to a flag, you know, or to the N-word. I'm like president. No, no, it's deeper than that. You have to look at policy. You have to look at the fact that why is why are African Americans and brown people only about 15% of the population, but over half the prison population? Why is it that we are rolling back voting rights at 50 years after Selma? Why is it that we don't want to pay living wages? And companies here resist living wages in America. But in other countries that have predominantly white workforces, for instance, McDonald's pays almost $20 an hour. But over here, where the predominant members of the workforce with them are black and brown and poor white people, we don't do that. So why is it that we are resegregating public schools faster now than we did in 1970? And, and how is this language this racialized language that to the naked ear, the untrained ear, sounds benign. But as one author says, what we have in America now, right now are races without race. We have, we have racism without races. Nobody will claim to be a racist now like they did 50 years ago. Right. So what would you tell the person with the untrained ear to, how do we get to be people who understand and see the racism embedded in our society for what it is? Well, several things. I think... You know, we almost got to be Pentecostal. And part of what means Pentecostal is we got to have a Pentecost. Remember, the great gift of Pentecost was that they heard. So first of all, you got to get to a place that you hear in another tongue. You've got to stop reading just what the papers say and just listening to what the news. You've got to read some other things like Ministry on the Mars, doing ministry. It's a book that was put out, like your book, Persecution Complex. I think I'm so sure you've probably done some serious analysis in here. Or like um, the State of the Dream Report that actually analyzes where are we 
with the dream right now. Not in terms of hearsay, but in actual data, empirical data. So today to understand racism, you don't have a sign up that says black and white. You have to look inside of public policy. You have to look inside of the data. You have to look in who's being impacted the most. You have to say, why is it that in the states that have had the highest increase of black and brown participation in voting, you're now having the greatest attack on voting rights. And and so, you, and you have to say that's a racial that's racial disparity. Now people are going to say, but we're not racist. You, say, you may claim not to be a racist, but if you participate in policies that are racially disparate, it's wrong. You may never say the N word, but if you know this policy is going to have a disparate impact on black and brown people, and thereby a negative impact on whites as well, then it's wrong. You know, I think we're we're all in this kind of um, awakening time. You know, you can look, we can look back at history and see different kind of time periods um, of awakening. And um, you know, sixties and seventies were definitely that. And I just I think we're in the next kind of phase where that's coming up. Um, and and people people keep asking, you know, well when when is this going to be over you know and we just had the one year anniversary of mike brown's death and you know um we're currently still under a state of emergency in ferguson um and you know i have friends who who were just in jail um over the weekend you know for this and so it's it's not going anywhere anytime soon so i think we we do have to start talking about it and we have to um kind of make some real um, some real effort. I think the biggest thing, it, it sounds so cheesy, but it does come down to relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, it does come down to, um, you know, like I mentioned the white fragility, like white people kind of have to get out of their own way um, and learn to listen and not let it be about them. Um, which sound, which, you know, I know that like to some people that's going to sound harsh, like, how is it not about me? Like, I feel really bad. It, it, but it's easy um, to kind of get lost in your own feelings. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, you, you, we start to talk about race and it feels really icky. And so we would rather kind of get rid of that icky feeling because, you know, for my, for my, many of us in the church, like bad feelings are bad. Like they're like, you're not supposed to have the bad yep. feelings, right? right. Like we, how quickly can we get back to like, you know, feelings of joy and the, like the happy worship music. We, we, many traditions, we've lost the ability to lament well. Hmm. And this is a time of lament. Like this is a time of us going, oh, I thought we did this before. Like, we had had this. We had Martin Luther King. Like, didn't we fix this? And we're lamenting the fact that we didn't fix it, and that we still have so far to go. What isn't helpful sometimes is when, like, white people come to me and kind of corner me, and they want to work their feelings out with me. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not your racial counselor. Like. You know, like they need me to legitimize their struggle and I have enough struggle. They like, that's why it's so important for, for white people to talk to other white people. 
about race. Because what we find is that white people don't talk about race. They don't talk about it with their children. They don't talk about it with each other, adults. Um, it's become this like, you know, no, 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 don't talk about, you know, Susie being black. Here's the thing, I need the people who say they love me to take the risk. I need my white friends to take the risk of looking bad or sounding bad because I I take a risk every day living in this culture. Um, this culture that I am more likely to die at the hands of police and vigilantes and my children are more likely to die. I need you to take the risk of having a difficult conversation. The conversation about race in America seems particularly difficult right now with events like Ferguson and the focus on police brutality and violence against black people with attention being given to systemic racism and and white supremacy with so much going on around us. How do those of us who are from all kinds of different races and backgrounds understand what's going on. I, I ask Mickey, how are we to view these events? How should we be understanding and paying attention to the things that are going on that sometimes can look very negative to us? When those kids sat at lunch counters in the 60s and people put out cigarettes in their skin and their hair and poured hot coffee on them and food on them, what they were exposing was how this society that looked together, as long as everyone stayed in their place, that it really wasn't. That the, that the society that kept black people from sitting at counters was violent. Yeah. In fact that I cannot sit where I want to sit. And so nonviolent direct action exposes that and says, no more. We will not live like this anymore. And so, you know, it's, we're at a moment again where we're, where there are tactics um, that are leading, that is leading to more truth telling. And I think this is a gift to the church. If the church will step up, and this is what's happening in St. Louis and Ferguson. A lot of people are like, they're, you know, the kids involved today, the young people, they're not Christians. And it's not, you know, with the church, it's not like it was in the 60s. And it's not. Um, it's not your mama's civil rights movement, but it's the, I've seen over the last year, the relationship developed between the clergy and the, and the activists and the organizers. And there, the, the clergy isn't calling the shots, but what they're doing is they are, um, they are sacrificially loving their communities and these people and doing it in, in the, in a very Christ-like way. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is the opportunity for the church to say, are we truly in this to love people and to live sacrificial lifestyles and to like Jesus engage in this revolutionary love that, that, that met systems of power and oppression and called them out within the church and without. David Bailey is the founder of Erebon, 
a ministry that is working to bring racial reconciliation within the body of Christ. They say they are equipping the church to reflect the diverse kingdom of God. Sure, I mean, I think a lot of people um, in Christian communities have an um, aspirational value for diversity, um, but generally don't move beyond that. I mean, eight and a half out of ten churches divide across racial lines, yeah. and, um, and the church is tend to, the church of the people where they meet uh, tend to be ten times more segregated in the neighborhood and twenty times more segregated than the neighborhood school of which the building of which the people meet in, you know? Yeah. And so what we uh, do is try to help people understand kind of where they're coming from. Where's their starting point? Some kind of homogenous unit principle. Uh, like what's the common thing that bringing these people to be a light, to gather around one another? And I think that's an important place to start. But then we have to like move towards diversity. And it takes intentionality uh, because of our history, because of our socioeconomics and things of that nature. And when you begin to have diversity, uh, you got to... You know, conflicts began to emerge, so you need to have a, both a theology and a practice of reconciliation. And as you begin to practice reconciliation, you kind of move beyond just like uh, moving through and moving beyond uh, uh, mending brokenness, but begin to actually have a vision of shalom. Like, how do you work together for the human flourishing of all people uh, under the lordship of Jesus Christ? Sure. I, I live in an area that's uh, basically about. <laughs> About fifty percent black and fifty percent white. Yeah, um, it's a it's a rural area, a, a, a fair amount of segregation. Um, you know, I, I think we're at a time where most people fairly most people get along. Right, right, but, right. You know, like now to be said, cordial. Yeah, like right. you said though, the churches, the churches are black churches or white churches. Right. Um, and a lot of times, even from those who are very welcoming of other races, there's still the talk of. It's just, it's our culture, you know, we have a cultural background of doing him a certain way, right. preaching a certain way, and and that's just okay. Is Do you think, is it okay? Or, or should, how much do we work to cross those boundaries? Right, right, and I think I think it's important to understand, like, why, right, and, like, and what is okay. So, like, I think, you know, we are where we are, both from our chemistry uh, how we were made and, and our sociology, yeah. right? But uh, we also are what we are because of our choices. Sure. And, and so I think the question is the, it's real important to ask is, you know, what are some of the other factors of why we make choices to be uh, uh, segregated on a functional level? Yeah. And I think when we begin to dig deeper, I think if the choice is only personal preference, then I think that's, uh, you know, we should begin to question that. Like, is that... Personal should Christian and Christian communities design Christian communities based off of personal preference, and I know that's a really key uh, marketing idea for church growth. Yeah. But you know, we need to ask about that. Is that really what Jesus tells disciples to do? You know, sure. um, I think another question is: is um, there's this term that says like distance demonizes, and so a lot of times we have a significant relational de- poverty uh, of the other, however we define the other. And so when it's across racial, educational, and socioeconomic lines, uh, some of the reasons why we uh, do things the way we've always done it and keep it segregated is because uh, on a subconscious and sometimes conscious level, we're actually suspicious of the other. Yeah. And I think we got to hold that into question. Now, I think if we're, like, pressing into that and, and, and learning how to create places of hospitality 
and just people just don't come. Yeah. I think that's on the Holy Spirit, but I think we have to do a lot of self-evaluation before we realize, uh, before we try to put something on the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So what would you kind of say to the the average church member who just they're in a they're in a they've they've spent their whole life in a church that's the same color as them um how do they break out of that or you know become a little more comfortable with with having some variety right right well you know i think one thing it's important for people to understand that you know we're in a post jim crow era meaning you know the way we understood race you know 50 years ago was uh generally we judge people by the color of their skin and and we have moved generally past. I mean, we, we kind of do it on a subconscious level, right. but on a overt conscious level, yeah. um, most people aren't saying like, "Hey, because you're a particular color, um, you're not invited to be a part right. of this community." Right. So I think the first thing is really understand that we really have a bias about culture, you know, and right. we feel like some cultures are better than others, and there's a hierarchy that we have of, of, of culture, and we don't really know and understand stuff, and we have a fear of what we don't understand. So, you know, I would really encourage congregational members and church leaders to begin to just take an evaluation of your own culture and begin to learn about other cultures and realize no matter what culture you come from, there are assets and there are deficits. And if we realize that, man, we have some gifts to share, some assets to share, and we have some deficits uh, within our culture, we realize we need to get some of the other cultural assets from other people groups and that would be a great place to start in a, in a very adventurous journey. That journey away from racial divides and toward unity and understanding seems to be a difficult one. Even understanding racism in our culture and the way racism is embedded into the society in which we live can be very difficult. But it's the responsibility of all of us to be working to heal those divides and to truly be the unified people that God has intended for us to be. I hope that you've enjoyed the show today. If you'd like to hear more from Mickey Scott Bay Jones, from Dr. William Barber, or from David Bailey, please take a look at the show notes information about their ministries and links to their websites are at the show notes. My name is Jason Weedle. Thank you for listening to Where Are We Going? Please check out our other shows on the Media Scorch Podcast Network.